This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Edgar Cruz. Tonight, on this special edition of Generation Justice, we'll dive into a lecture given by Dr. Safiya Noble, an assistant professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California. Dr. Noble spoke at the University of New Mexico, where she discussed her research on algorithmic biases of racism and sexism commonly found on commercial search engines like Google. Dr. Noble has taught in the School of Education at UCLA and is a co-founder of the Information Ethics and Equity Institute. We hope you enjoy this eye-opening presentation, The Algorithms of Oppression. My name is Alicia Ringer, and I am the president of ComGrads, the, one of the or sponsoring organizations. I also work with the Feminist Research Institute, who is another sponsoring organization, and we have a whole host of them. Uh, communication and Journalism Department, ComGrads also, American Studies, Africana Studies, Advance, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Center for Health Policy, the Honors College, Graduate Studies, the Division for Equity and Inclusion, the Feminist Research Institute, and the Institute for the Study of Race and Justice. So if you're not on their listservs, go get on their listservs, because all of them do cool things. Today we have Dr. Safia Umoja Noble. She's an assistant professor at the University of Southern California in the Annenberg School of Communication. She's a partner in Stratelligence, a firm that specializes in research on information and data science challenges, and is a co-founder of the Information Ethics and Equity Institute, which provides training for organizations committed to transforming their information management practices towards more just, ethical, and equitable outcomes. She is the recipient of the Hellman Fellowship and the UCLA Early Career Award. Noble's academic research focuses on the design of digital media platforms on the internet and their impact on society. Her monograph on racist and sexist algorithmic bias in commercial search engines is entitled Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism from NYU Press. She currently serves as an associate editor for the Journal of Critical Library and Informational Studies and is the co-editor of two books, The Intersectional Internet, Race, Culture, Sex, and Class Online, and Emotions, Technology, and Design. Safia holds a PhD and MS in Library and Information Science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a BA in Sociology from California State University, Fresno, with an emphasis on African American and Ethnic Studies. Please join me in welcoming Safia Noble. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So nice to meet you. I have primarily worked in information studies, which is kind of the library and information science field. I uh, at work in a communication school now, which is a, a field I would say adjacent. Um, I've always held appointments in black studies, and I consider myself a black studies scholar who's doing information science work. Um, I've also always held gender studies appointments in the universities where I've been. So, you know, algorithms have really moved from this uh, kind of sequestered space of knowledge that I think we might think about in applied math or math and computer science uh, to cultural studies, ethnic studies, gender studies, all kinds of other places. And one of the things that I think is really interesting and exciting about this is that there's now kind of a contemporary moment for us to talk about the cultural and social, the social impact of algorithms. And so tonight, that's what this talk will be. Now, I know for those of you who are computer scientists, sometimes this can also be an incredibly uncomfortable conversation. And so try to ride with me through that, those feelings. Just ride the wave of those emotions. All right. Algorithms, as you know, 
have been in the headlines recently. And, uh, and so what I, I want you to be thinking about tonight is what's at stake when we relinquish human decision-making to algorithms and, uh, and the possibilities of that. I'm also going to suggest a, a, a provocation that might make sense for some people in the room, might not for others. Um, one of the main things that I argue in the book is that at the very moment, historically, when women and people of color have the opportunity to be enfranchised into decision-making capacities in our society, and with that I mean the passage of the Civil Rights Act and then the ensuing um, efforts at uh, stabilizing affirmative action as some type of restorative gesture and, and a series of kind of legislative acts at the state and federal level, at the very moment that people of color, particularly uh, underrepresented black, Latino, uh, Latina, um, indigenous voices have an opportunity to be enfranchised into decision-making managerial positions, that is simultaneously the moment that we have the rise of computerization and new logics that computers can make better decisions than human beings. And for me, that's not a coincidence. And it's part of, I think, again, what's at stake when we talk about how humans get removed or, let's say, uh, moved further to the background of visibility around the kinds of decisions that get made. And so we'll talk about some of that, too. Let's start with this campaign. Some of you might have seen this in uh, October of 2013. Um, the United Nations launched this campaign, and this campaign was really designed to raise awareness about the ways in which sexism was still pervasive in our society. Um, on the United Nations campaign uh, website, they talked about how their ad agency that they'd partnered with, Mimak Ogilvy and Mather Dubai, had collected searches on women, and they had used Google's kind of auto-suggestion feature to see what was most popular when they started typing certain phrases. When they typed, women cannot Google auto-completed, drive, be bishops, be trusted, speak in church, women shouldn't have rights, vote, work, box, women should stay at home, be slaves, be in the kitchen, not speak in church, women need to be put in their place, know their place, be controlled, be disciplined. Now, this was an interesting campaign to me because one of the things that United Nations was arguing is that this was a direct reflection of what's most, what the most popular consciousness is about women in certain parts of the world. And I, thought, I found this a, a real short-sighted, uh, one-dimensional way of thinking about what's happening in Google search. And so I kind of open up the book talking about this campaign. One of the, uh, the, the kind of logics that's embedded in this campaign is that search engine results strictly reflect what's most popular. This is a kind of a mythology about how search works. And I'm going to kind of take you on a little bit of a journey tonight. I'm not going to share with you all of the examples from the book, but I'm going to give you a few that might open our eyes to some of the logics that also undergird what's happening in these large commercial platforms. Now, it's not just Google that we could point to, Google search. We could also talk about Google's other properties like YouTube, Maps, um, uh, so forth, 
Uh, we could talk about how what happens in those spaces translates into other places like Facebook, and I know a lot of people have been interested in talking about Facebook recently. I've been giving a lot of media interviews, uh, in fact, about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. But here's a, you know, a way that I think we can start to cut in on how we might dislodge this idea that search is strictly a matter of what's most popular. What in fact is happening is that there are other dimensions that affect what shows up in search, such as those who have the most uh, economic power, those who have the most capital, are really able to influence what shows up in our search results. Those who have a lot of technical uh, skill or prowess are also able to affect the kinds of results that we get. And this is imp particularly important to me, and one of the reasons why I focus on search is because at the moment that uh, public media, public institutions like universities and public schools, um, public libraries, and, and kind of the, what we might think of as the democratic uh, institutions in our society that can serve as a counterweight to corporate or commercial information, at the moment that those are being um, eviscerated, we have a total kind of reliance and trust in these commercial alternatives. And I think this is one of the things that is really at stake, particularly right now. Um, you know, when I first started this work and I was talking about uh, all of the things that are at stake, in particular for people of color and women in large digital media platforms like Google Search, nobody was particularly interested. But then when that phenomena, uh, you know, I don't know, undermined democracy, and through a presidential election, now, weirdly, everyone cares. So, you know, the logics that are happening in some of the examples that I give you are precisely the kinds of logics that we've seen in the past year. All right, so let's talk about some of the, uh, some additional failures. Here we have a story that went viral on uh, Twitter. DeRay McKesson, who some of you may know, uh, came to be fairly well known on Twitter after uh, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson and uh, Ferguson and he became uh, an amplified voice mostly because right around that time Beyonce followed DeRay and so I just want to say if anybody here knows Beyonce and you could get her to follow me it would be super helpful in amplifying the work but here's DeRay and he says if you google map the n-word house this is what you get this is what you'll find America and what was happening is that at that time, if you did a search on the N-word house or the N-word king in Google Maps, this is during the presidency of Barack Obama, Google Maps would hone in right on the White House. And so um, when Google was contacted, of course, uh, often when these kinds of failures happen, Google is reached out to you for comment. And, um, you know, here we have kind of, a, this is a very, quite a classic Google or, or big Silicon Valley tech response, which is some inappropriate results are surfacing in Google Maps. It should not be. We apologize for any offense this may have caused. So this is a typical kind of non-apology apology that comes out of uh, tech companies. Um, the Google spokesperson says, our teams are working to fix this issue quickly. Now, this is a very common way that you will, again, see a statement come out of Silicon Valley, which is that this is simply a glitch or an issue uh, of a technical nature in an otherwise perfectly smooth operating system. 
And I think this is one of the things, and when you read the book, you see there are many, many examples of these kinds of failures that beg the question, um, is this just a matter of glitch, or is this kind of part of the fundamental operating logic, which is to make black people, anti-blackness, uh, normative in these technological spaces, in these platforms, um, that then when they're caught, get quietly addressed. This is another one that, um, that I love, and by when I say I love, I mean I hate. Um, here's Google searches on, quote, unprofessional hairstyles for work. When you did a Google image search, this was also a, a tweet that went viral. Um, when uh, you, for, for a long time, if you did a search on unprofessional hairstyles for work, you got exclusively black women with natural hair. And when you did this search on professional hairstyles for work, they, all of Google's images featured white women with ponytails and updos. Um, I often tell my white girlfriends at work that um, it's really the ponytail and the updo that makes them professional, as well as being white. So I think these are the kinds of things that we want to think of. You're listening to Generation Justice where we've been hearing a lecture given by Dr. Sofia Noble, given at the University of New Mexico. Let's hear more on her insightful research. You know, one of the things that's happening here is what I call kind of a technological mediation of ourselves. And what I mean by that is that we have increasingly come to be so reliant upon these types of information technologies, search, image search, other types of platforms, and we think of them as being objective and neutral, not bounded by any particular logics except the logic, let's say, of code or math, mathematical formulation, algorithmic formulation. Um, and yet, it is human beings who write code. Those of you who are computer scientists know that writing code is an incredibly subjective, artistic kind of experience. Um, I called myself writing code for a few months, and then I was like, this is actually not for me. Um, I, I, I would rather do a lot of things other than miss, like, a stroke <laughs> in that and throw the whole thing away. But this idea of, uh, and if you work, I worked for a long time as a UX um, uh, designer um, at a tech company when I was in grad school, and I can tell you that all of the pro programmers there, I mean, they were... Uh, deeply proud of their particular way of coding and their, the, the design choices that they would make in the programming languages that they would use. And so this is very much an interpretive, subjective process, just the way any other kind of language is highly interpretive and subjective and, and value-laden. And yet, there's kind of, a, again, a mythology or an idea that writing code is strictly technical, strictly mathematical, not subjective, really a matter, of, a matter of ones and zeros, and that no values could be infused in that process of making these kinds of choices, which ultimately are a matter of if these words or conditions are present, then make these kinds of choices, right, in a much more complicated uh, way. In fact, it's very difficult for us to study 
Google um, at the level of code because their code is proprietary, as we know, and so we can't really see. Um, one of the things that many of us who are interested in studying platforms do is we study the output of platforms, and that helps us to do the sense making of some of the logics that undergird um, these types of systems. Um, again, I think of this, and I, I want to underscore this idea of a technological mediation, which is to say we give over our agency and the notion that there is agency in the technological, and we um, abandon our own judgment in lieu of some other type of logics that we think are better, more formal, more precise than our own logics that, again, are also part of that process of designing um, technical systems. And I think that this is um, a, one of the things that's a challenge about this is that we are increasingly having a very narrow segment of our population who can participate in this kind of mediation. And so as we, again, are removed from these decision-making processes or these nuanced conversations, we leave the decision-making to a very kind of elite strata of our society. And I, and I dare say a strata of our society that is less prepared to participate in some of these sociological dimensions of the projects themselves. So somehow I got a whole lot of computer science students one year, and, uh, and I was talking to them, and I said, you know, you really, as I was introducing some of these concepts and challenging some of their notions, I mean, they would be borderline traumatized, I mean, really saddened uh, to think that after four years in a computer science program, no one had talked to them about the social implications of their work. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, I, I feel very strongly that people who are designing technology for society that have no idea about anything that's going on in society um, are not trained on society, have no business designing platforms that are then just kind of deployed upon us, and, uh, and then we deal with the aftermath of that. When I was in graduate school, I, was, uh, I had two kind of separate momentous occasions. The first was I was talking with a colleague of mine, um, uh, Professor Andre Brock, who's at the University of Michigan, and I was telling him that I was interested in writing about Google for my dissertation. And one of the things that was interesting to me at that time, I had just started a PhD program in uh, library and information science at Illinois, and this was at the height of the Google Book Digitization Project, which you, some of you might remember. And I had just left a 15-year career in advertising and marketing, and this was at a, at a time when people in um, advertising were super interested in how to game Google. And we were trying to figure out how to manipulate results so that our clients would show up on the first page. Of course, knowing that no one goes past the first page of search results. I know this is a savvy crowd, so you probably dip in on page 12, but the majority of people do not do that. Uh, so I was really fascinated uh, at how academics were talking about Google and engaging with Google as if it were um, the new public library that was going to change the face of information culture for the better and make all the world's knowledge. And I had related to Google already as an advertising platform and not as an information retrieval platform. So 
Um, I started thinking about this, and I, I was talking in this way with Professor Brock, and he was like, oh yeah, you should see what happens when you search for black girls. And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, mm. And so I did. And um, in 2009, what I did that kind of first search, uh, hotblackp.com was the first search. Um, that was the first result, and, uh, and I thought, well, maybe this was just kind of an anomaly, um, but it was interesting to me that the whole first page of uh, search results were almost exclusively porn sites or hypersexualized sites. And so um, it, there was a day that I was, my, my stepdaughter, my bonus daughter, and my, uh, my nieces were all going to come over, and I was like, you know, we've got to figure out some things to do today, and so I was like, let me just... We'll see what's happening online. And again, when I did the query on black girls, these were the results, which you can see are almost exclusively um, porn sites, with the exception of the second hit here, which is um, a UK band of white guys who call themselves the black girls. Has anyone heard of them? No one, don't. No one's ever heard of them. Um, so the black girls, the UK band, were the second hit on this uh, and, uh, and then, of course, as you go down, porn site, porn site, kind of a chat site that leads to porn. The Black Girls, the UK band, their Facebook page, winning, um, and then followed by another kind of porn site and then a, a blog. And a, a blog that was actually uh, troubling also. This is really what became the driver for the book, is thinking about what does it mean when marginalized um, people, let, let's say in this case, black uh, girl children who don't have the numbers to quote-unquote game the system, right? Because demographically, they're not powerfully represented. There's not enough of them to click on enough things to get the uh, other alternative content to the front page. What does it mean that this same community um, can, does not have the capital, even if we broke open all the piggy banks, in the country cannot compete on any level with the porn industry, which actually has more money than anyone um, and has, you know, whether we like it or not, contributed immensely to most of the technological innovation that we've seen online because the porn industry has been deeply invested in things like video processing so that you can watch video and credit card processing so that you can um, pay to watch video and audio and bandwidth and a whole host of things that are necessary to expand that market. And so um, black girls as a community cannot compete at that level with industries. And so uh, this is what really kind of opened up this uh, conversation about the political economy of the internet and who loses, and um, particularly when we talk about racialized and gendered uh, communities and people, and who gets to decide ultimately what the markers are for our identities at the community level in the U.S. Now, in Europe right now, we have some really uh, uh, forward-thinking legislation that protects uh, EU citizens at the individual level around whether it's the right to be forgotten or the ability to um, issue kind of takedown requests to large uh, digital media platforms so that if you are 
um, you know, dragged or trolled on the internet, you can uh, find recourse. In the US, we have to go to court. It's an incredibly complicated process to get disinformation or misinformation about us down. But that's only at the personal level. That's at, my, at the level of my name. What about the communities that I belong to? Who gets to decide how those communities are represented? And of course, in the case, for many years, um, black girls were uh, uh, highly pornified and represented by the porn industry. And I think that one of the things that um, uh, is, is still unfortunate is that uh, Latina girls and Asian girls, for example, are still highly pornified. But we have to be incredibly diligent. You, going back to the maps, right, or the unprofessional hairstyles for work, it takes almost a public shaming in order to get the, the tweaks. And um, Google did make a, an adjustment in their algorithm and they pushed the porn down for black girls. They did that in the fall of 2012. But it's interesting to me, there was no public apology. There was no acknowledgement that that happened. And so these quiet tweaks are made. Now, one of the reasons that happens is kind of when it's unavoidable. I mean, when it's about the White House or the First Lady Michelle Obama, tech companies can't really get around making a quiet change to the algorithm. But when it's about people who are already considered, um, you know, expendable or in the margin, um, what we often find are these very quiet, silent uh, tweaks that are not visible unless we kind of stay on top of um, how that's happening. And um, part, I believe that the logic of that is that to make, to acknowledge that these systems are not just a matter of um, perfect logic uh, is to undermine the veracity of the entire system and how most of these platforms work. And so you will often find in the US context there will not be an acknowledgement of these kinds of failures that happen. Now, these ideas about black women and girls as hypersexual, as deserving of this particular type of framing of derision is an incredibly old narrative. And this is one of the things where I find it powerful and useful to have people who have a background in ethnic studies and cultural studies and gender studies to do the sense making of what those kinds of results mean in context and how that, that stereotype has been used in service of um, deploying resources in service of others and not in service of black women and children. And of course, this is a major issue in our society in terms of how public policy has worked to disenfranchise black women and children since the inception of the United States. And so uh, this is a way, again, for us to understand that this is not just a matter of uh, black women shouldn't be represented pornographically or Latinas or Asian American women. We could, do the, we could have a very similar kind of deconstruction for women of color and how those narratives really work and they circulate in our society, again, to bolster racist and sexist public policy as well as just behavior. Uh, everyday behavior toward um, toward women of color, and I think this is important. These problems are not just exclusive to commercial platforms. I mean, there are a number of commercial platforms that also exist in our academic spaces, and I've also, because I come out of the field of information studies, I've also been interested in how, for example, academic library databases represent and misrepresent 
uh, many forms of knowledge. And for those of us who are really, I mean, you know, on, on one kind of basic level, we really understand that getting our students or to use academic library databases instead of Google to write their papers. It kind of seems like a no-brainer, even though I have many students who say I could have never graduated from college without Google. I wrote all of my papers out of Google. And one of the things that's been happening is that academic databases in particular are, in, are, are feeling the pressure to Googleize their products, right, to make them less transparent, to make them less complicated, to find ways for interoperability across a lot of different forms of knowledge databases. Even the use of databases as a way to access knowledge makes it quite difficult because you can't see the relatedness or the context of information. If you want to have a good time with your undergraduates, I would say um, give them an assignment where they have to go look up something that's meaningful to them in the stacks of the library, and I'll tell you that a number of undergraduates uh, increasingly have never walked the stacks. In fact, in some universities, the stacks are closed. You have to use the database to retrieve, to call up an item, and then it's at the front desk for you. Well, what that doesn't allow you to see, for example, is that um, if, let's say, you're working, you're, you're interested in writing a paper on, um, on LGBTQ communities, and you call up one particular item and you go to the stacks and you find that as you're cruising the stacks, there's all kinds of other items that orbit in relationship on the shelves to that particular item you were interested in. But also, weirdly, how come all the LGBTQ um, uh, knowledge is situated around sexual deviance? That's an interesting way of framing sexuality. And this, of course, is one of the failings of things like the Dewey Decimal System, right? Or other kind of um, the Library of Congress subject headings. Welcome back to Generation Justice, where we've been listening to a lecture given by Dr. Safiya Noble as she discussed her research on algorithmic biases of racism and sexism. Now, we'll rejoin the discussion. But I think about these kinds of things when students and future generations go to the library and think about this ourselves as we're sending people and they're looking up black history and racism and trying to do the sense making and what they get are egregious stereotypes that don't that are decontextualized again from the sense making projects and you know, you can do these, um, these various kinds of queries. I have so many people on Twitter who tweet at me all kinds of horrible things that they are finding inspired by this talk, and so um, that's fun. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, again, this raises the questions about who owns our identity and our identity-based markers in these digital and web-based systems. And it also raises the questions as to whether these racial identities around race and gender are ownable property rights that can be contested. And of course, identity is so closely tied in the US to, um, to property and notions of, of owning one's identity. Um, so I think, you know, I think here about the work of uh, Jessica Davis and Oscar Gandhi, who have written quite a bit about media stereotypes and media representations. And this is one of the things we have to understand is that these media representations are so important because they serve as the logics, again, and the justification for the distribution of resources in our society. And, um, you know, we see the new 
you know, new iterations, whether it's kind of the welfare queen or the, the, the brute um, hoodie wearing African American teenager, you know, if Trayvon hadn't worn a hoodie, it's that that's the reason that police brutality happens, right? Or how, you know, if he wasn't holding a shower head or whatever the kind of logics that undergird violence and racialized brutality in our society, those tropes are so instantly available and accessible. If they had just bought a Starbucks coffee instead of asking to use the bathroom, right? I mean, it almost every day there's something in the headlines. But these kinds of misrepresentations for me are part of the indoctrination, if you will, and the, the ways in which people become deeply desensitized. So why, why also study Google? Because it's really considered, I think to many people, um, a trusted archive, um, a trusted keeper of records, and a credible curator of information. Now we've talked a little bit about um, you know, the economics of, of what happens. I will tell you that one of the things that's quite fascinating to me right now in the conversations about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica is that, for example, the psychographic profiling of people through Facebook and the micro-targeting of ads, if you think that those logics weren't used to then optimize YouTube videos and disinformation in YouTube or to uh, heavily purchase uh, and optimize content through AdWords, which is Google's tool of helping match content and, of course, making an incredible amount of money off of that optimization, then you really kind of have missed the big story to me about what's happening there um, with, with this kind of current revelation. Um, you know, there was a great study about prior to the presidential election, in fact, by Epstein and Robertson, where they argued that... Um, Manipulating search rankings could shift voters' um, preferences substantially without their awareness. And one of the things that they did was a controlled study where they showed people favorable results on the first page of Google um, results about uh, a political candidate. And if the majority of the front page were positive uh, articles or links about a candidate, people said they would vote for them. And it's almost like a foreshadowing of exactly what happened in the presidential campaign. And of course, that level of targeting, of influencing what shows up on the political, uh, on the political front around voter education is quite consistent with Matthew Hinman's findings um, in his book, The Myth of Digital Democracy, where he basically argues that political action committees with a lot of resources are able to wholly manipulate what shows up on the front page of search results. And so this is really, to me, an incredible um, reason and justification for thinking about regulation of these platforms. Um, but I would add to that that it's not simply enough to regulate digital media platforms and not uh, fund and bolster public information alternatives. And I think that's really important. And I certainly would consider um, universities, libraries, uh, public media, and schools to be part of the alternative, um, the traditional media infrastructure that we've been reliant upon. Uh, here you have the week following the presidential election that when you did a search for um, presidential election results, on the first page of Google, um, it would take you to a disinformation site that would report to you that Donald Trump had won the popular vote. Imagine, when we, th when we talk about why the country is divided, why people are operating within different frameworks and different logics, 
part of it is because the trusted curatorial resources that they think they can rely upon, like a Google search, is here. Now I'll tell you that Pew has done great um, research on their American uh, life uh, and internet uh, study. And one of the things they found in their last search engine use study in 2012 was that 73% of Americans believe that what they find in a search engine is accurate and trustworthy. 73%. And 68% say that search engine results are a fair and unbiased source of information. I know that's no one in this room, everyone's laughing, but that's not what our friends and our family, that's where they are, quite likely, around their trust in these platforms. And I think, again, a lot is at stake with this kind of trust. Here we have a more um, even alarming situation where we see that um, white nationalists have been uh, incredibly powerful and, uh, in, with their technical prowess in gaming the systems and being able to uh, get white supremacist content to the top, particularly around a number of different kinds of queries. Here was a story that was written and picked up by um, US uh, News, I think, here, um, uh, talking about how uh, white supremacists had co-opted the term Boasian anthropology and uh, where it was leading you to Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic um, sites and when Google was asked about it, when Sergey Brin, the co-founder, was asked, he says uh, when he was asked about adjusting the algorithm to prevent the results from reaching the top levels of search, he said that would be bad technology practice. He says an important part of our values as a company is that we do not edit the search results. What our algorithms produce, whether we like it or not, are the search results. I think people want to know we have unbiased search results. Interesting, because when they got called to the carpet on the White House, the search, the Google Map search results went somewhere else. When the picture, uh, a picture of Michelle Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama had been photoshopped with a, a, a photo of a monkey on her face, and you were doing the image search on uh, Michelle Obama, and that was the first image for a long time, the White House actually also again intervened and asked that that picture be taken down and Google took a lot of heat for suppressing that image. But what we see is that there are again people who have an incredible amount of technical skill that are able to optimize the worst to the top. And uh, uh, Jesse Daniels wrote an amazing book called Cyber Racism that if you're interested in how cloaked websites and white supremacist websites work online. I highly recommend that you read her book to understand how that works. So here we have in the US kind of context that um, Google does not edit the search results because it's providing unbiased search, except for when they're doing business in Germany and France, where it's illegal to traffic in hate speech and anti-Semitic content. And so here you have um, France, and in particular Germany, who's had, I think, the most um, pressing legislation around the control of hate speech and uh, you know, coming back in Google search results because unlike the US context, in Germany they're incredibly clear that um, hate speech unchecked can have disastrous consequences like a holocaust. Something that we have not quite learned our lessons on yet here in the United States and so it will be interesting, I think one can hope that um, we will understand what's at stake 
for our um, uncritical examination of what speech can do in relationship to behavior, and certainly in terms of the online radicalization of Americans. So one of the things I want to just kind of close this out on uh, is the case of Dylan Stormroof. So here we have Dylan Roof, and I wrote a whole chapter about Dylan Roof in the book, um, who, as many of you know, was a 21-year-old white nationalist who opened fire in uh, Charleston, South Carolina in, um, in June of 2015. And, you know, his murder of nine African-American um, worshipers at Mother Emanuel AME Church was probably, you know, one of the more recent acts of uh, religious and uh, racial hate. Uh, um, so in Dylan Roof's own words, when, when many of us who were trying to figure out what, what motivated Dylan Roof, and quickly someone within about 24 hours on um, Twitter found his manifesto at the last Rhodesian. And this was the passage of his manifesto that really jumped out to me. He says, the event that truly awakened me was the Trayvon Martin case. I kept hearing and seeing his name, and eventually I decided to look him up. I read the Wikipedia article, and right away I was unable to understand what the big deal was. It was obvious that Zimmerman was in the right. But more importantly, this prompted me to type in the words black on white crime into Google, and I have never been the same since that day. The first website I came to was the Council of Conservative Citizens. There were pages upon pages of these brutal black-on-white murders. I was in disbelief. At this moment, I realized that something was very wrong. How could the news be blowing up the Trayvon Martin case while hundreds of these black-on-white murders got ignored? From this point, I researched deeper and found out what was happening in Europe. I saw that the same things were happening in England and France and in all the other Western European countries. Again, I found myself in disbelief. As an American, we're taught to accept living in the melting pot, and black and other minorities have just as much right to be here as we do, since we're all immigrants. But Europe is the homeland of white people, and in many ways, the situation is even worse there. From here, I found out about the Jewish problem and other issues facing our race, and I can say today that I am completely racially aware. One of the things that's interesting to me about Dylan Roos' manifesto is that he says he used to do his research on Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. And he uses the phrase black on white crime, which many of us in this room know is kind of a racist red herring that gets used by uh, white nationalists in our country. What he doesn't get when he types in uh, this, uh, this phrase is he doesn't get like a suggest auto-suggestion, did you mean white on black crime? Did you mean white on white crime? Did you mean something to even create a provocation? That the question itself might be a question that doesn't make sense or isn't quite right. He also isn't led to any information, for example, written by black studies scholars or other critical whiteness scholars or people who might uh, contextualize that phrase as a racist red herring. The, the phrase also doesn't lead you to, um, for example, FBI statistics that show that violent crime is um, an intra-racial phenomenon. So we're very familiar with the phrase black on black crime, that crime, violent crime among African Americans is largely committed by African Americans. I'm here to give you white on white crime tonight that you can also put into circulation because the majority of white people are also killed by white people. And yet we don't have as much facility, strangely, with that term. So let's talk about what does it mean that there's no framing, no context in a search engine for these kinds of questions. 
what you do get is the Council of Conservative Citizens. Now, the Council of Conservative Citizens, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, they describe the CCC as vehemently racist. But that also doesn't come up as any way to make sense of the CCC. The CCC is like the, the online corollary to the White Citizens Council. So those of you who know your history know that the KKK was, you know, the kind of um, terrorist organization uh, terrorizing African Americans, uh, gay people, Jewish people, um, uh, anyone who kind of was, didn't fit into a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, depiction of the U.S. For those who couldn't be in the KKK because let's say they were the mayor or they were an assembly member or they were a, a, a federal representative, they might join the, council, the, the white citizens council in their community because that was kind of the business people's organization. The CCC is kind of, it looks to be kind of just a conservative news aggregator. Just interested, just conservative news. But you just go one layer into the site and you see it's a, an anti-black, anti-Semitic, um, you know, kind of hate-filled uh, site that, you know, works on these kinds of kind of media logics of just presenting an alternate point of view. All right, and so these are some of the interesting things to me about what does it mean when young people or not so young people are reliant upon search engines to say, make sense of something like Black Lives Matter or the murder of Trayvon Martin and are led, in fact, to this type of content. Now again, librarians, we love to think that if, and for right after this, many librarians were saying, well, if he had only gone to the library, there would have been an alternate reading. We could have done something. We could have made an intervention. And yet, when you go to, this was when I was at UCLA. My friends at USC love it when I use this example because they hate UCLA. And so it's like, they're like, keep the UCLA slide. Um, okay, but here's what happens when you go to the UCLA database, in the database. But the first thing you get to that actually mentions black and white is this book called um, America in Black and White, One Nation Indivisible by Stephen and Abigail Thernstrom. The Thernstroms are both Harvard professors. And they also happen to work for the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute, if you don't know, is kind of considered a you know, uh, for those who are kind of media watchdog organizations would argue that this is a um, right-wing think tank, quite frankly. That's what it is. And it's been very active. It works under kind of the auspices of free market logics. And it's been very, very uh, active in things like undermining welfare reform, fostering kind of anti-black, anti-poor, anti-women kinds of policies. And so here the Manhattan Institute funded book is the first result in the library. And I think these are the kinds of things that are really at stake, again, when we talk about digital systems as the only organizing logic for knowledge and information in our society. I wrote a piece recently about Time in Time Magazine about what I think is at stake. And one of the things that I say is that tech companies have really been slow to respond to the way that their platforms have been used to amplify hate. Anonymity in social media platforms often makes it difficult to identify the right-wing radicalization that's happening to some Americans online, exposing users to violent and racist disinformation. And one of the things I say is that we really need new business practices and policies that address the public harm that's propagated in these media tech companies, um, particularly as various uh, actors use these platforms to enact violence um, and organize violence against others. Um, and so I, one of the things that's really important to this process is 
uh, a whole interesting phenomenon called commercial content moderation that my colleague Sarah Roberts um, at UCLA has really, who's done the work, all right? She's done the work around um, helping us understand that there are not just algorithms that are at play in moderating these contents, but also human beings. And those human beings many times have about 15 seconds to adjudicate content that comes across their screen and do the sense making of it. And many times that type of content moderation is happening outside of the United States in other parts of the world, completely divorced from uh, the US context. So imagine trying to adjudicate that you have been the victim of racist trolling and you put up in Facebook or you put up on Twitter or in any digital media platform a screenshot of the way in which you've been trolled and then you get blocked or deactivated because the sense-making work is either being done algorithmically or it's being done so quickly that it can't really be properly contextualized and or it's happening outside of the United States. And so it's very difficult, much is lost potentially in translation. And so I think there's a lot at stake. And for those of you who are interested, come and join us in this field of digital information um, studies. And uh, there's, there's so many important things that we need to be studying. The last thing I'll just say um, to this is that my work is moving toward thinking about robotics. Um, and now one of the things that I think is so important around robotics is that, again, automated decision-making logics, you could call it artificial intelligence, certainly search is a form of artificial intelligence. Everyone's really in love with AI, I don't know why. Um, and it's going to continue to be uh, embedded in all kinds of devices, but those devices are not um, just like Alexa and Siri, which are interesting gendered uh, performances of AI, and that's another talk for another day. Um, but, but they're also being embedded into anthropomorphized devices, right, that look like human beings. And so it's been really interesting to watch, for example, that um, huge investments that have been made in sex dolls and not into, um, I don't know, like anthropomorphic male robots who do housework. I don't know, it's just like an idea. Um, but those are the, you know, the, the types of labor that robots can provide, um, starting with sex, tells us everything we need to know about uh, some of what the future holds. You know, the, the thing that to me is so interesting is to think about what would an intersectional internet look like? And of course, the internet at many layers. Um, it's not just uh, the kind of, uh, the ways in which we're represented online. In this book, in fact, that um, I'm so proud that um, um, Professor Myra Washington um, contributed to, um, we take a look at not just the level, the issues of representation, and of course, I've talked mostly about representation, but we also talk about the material dimensions of the internet. And that includes kind of the infrastructures of the internet, the way that fiber optics um, and cables are sites of, of politics and power, um, certainly the ways in which, uh, uh, and kind of my, my work looks at uh, uh, mineral extraction from the continent, um, particularly in the Congo where you have Colton mining and incredibly dangerous uh, labor conditions, but also blood minerals that are really the basis for war and exploitation that is happening in that. And these are really following uh, previous colonial patterns of extraction, not unlike 
um, petroleum or rubber or other types of minerals that have been used to foster particular kinds of lifestyles in the global north. So what are some of the things that we can do? One of the things I think we need to be doing is we need to be building repositories and platforms that belong to the public. Those don't have to just be digital. Because with every new digital project, again, those consequences and affordances of what's at stake. I think we need to curate and index the, the kind of open web in more public interest ways and not just um, to maximize profit. And uh, again, um, I think we have to stop with the racist, sexist, kind of colorblind ideologies that undergird many of our database systems. Um, reducing the technology overdevelopment and the e-waste, um, and I certainly talk, I mean, my own language, I really try to frame for my students. Um, rather than thinking about places that are underdeveloped, let's talk about overdevelopment. You know, one of the things that I often say is that we have more data and technology than ever, but we also have more social, political, and economic inequality and injustice to go with it. These have not been just the sites of liberation that people have liked to talk about for the last 25 years. Um, and so uh, thank you so much for your attention. I really appreciate it. You've just heard a presentation by Dr. Safiya Noble, Assistant Professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Southern California, and author of Algorithms of Oppression, which is available through all major book retailers. Generation Justice is dedicated to improving the digital security and literacy of our community members. If you would like more information on digital literacy, we invite you to subscribe to eWoke, a weekly newsletter that is curated with the latest information on digital security and news. Subscribe by visiting generationjustice.org and clicking the media button, then eWoke. We've come to the end of another hour of resistance on the web. We would like to thank Safia Noble for presenting this amazing work and thank you to Myra Washington of the UNM School of Communication and Journalism. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for being the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can peruse all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. We're also active on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. And next, you will hear Get Off the Internet by Le Tigre, followed by Everything is Everything by Lauren Hill. I'm Edgar Cruz, coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Nos vemos.